Hello, and welcome to So It's a Show. We are notable because we are maybe the first Impressionist podcast ever in history to be recorded. And we are also uh, done by some really famous artists. And look at the way those brush strokes really highlight our cheekbones and our voices. Oh, that's not interesting to you? Well, then how about this? We're worth $110 million. <laughs> Woo! Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Wow. Oh, Taylor, there we go. I no idea where you're going with that. And we are hanging in the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum of Art in New York City. Appreciate. Learn. Understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you, observant little children. You are more likely to be impressed by people breaking into the museum than the art they are stealing. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, while all of those things are true, we Mm -hmm. are definitely worth $110 million. Feel free to offer to sponsor us, do ads. We open to that. We are also a podcast where we attempt to keep up with Lorelai and Rory's pop culture references on Gilmore Girls. I'm Taylor. I'm Monet. Oh, are we picking artist names? Because I'm the artist formerly known as Taylor. But you could also call me Van Gogh. Mmm. We are in good company of each other. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. But actually, I am the artist... Formerly known as Monet, but currently known as Kyla. Oh yeah, I think I switched mine. I'm formerly known. No, no, known yours, as yours is fine. But just because I oh. said Monet first, that's how I, it had to be. I apologize for the confusion, friends. That's so hard to keep my identity straight. <laughs> oh, this paint is clogging your pores. <laughs> I do lay it on thick sometimes. <laughs> But yes. um, that was good. <laughs> oh, thanks. Oh, Not as good it. as your joke, though. I will tell you, in our last episode, when you told your joke about, hey, we all gotta eat, <laughs> I laughed again. I didn't, okay, I didn't even know why that was so funny. I just, it's just something I said. It was a good punchline. <laughs> You're a better writer, joke writer, than you realize, I think. I guess so. I think I need to go into comedy, there guys. That's what I know. Yes. <laughs> oh, but I'm well, thank good you. joke. Thank you. So that <laughs> is a little teaser for our last episode because the last two episodes have been super fun. We've had guests. Mm-hmm. And we definitely recommend you go and check out those two episodes. That said, I realized we never actually explained this on the show, though we did if you were subscribed to our tiny letter. We skipped an episode of Gilmore Girls. I know. Episode 207, Like Mother, Like Daughter, we did not cover because we did not find a wonderful pop culture reference we thought we could fill a whole episode with. But we definitely recommend you watch that episode of Gilmore Girls. And if there's something in there that you're like, yo, I don't get this, let us know. We can always backtrack. Yeah, there were just, uh, rarely does this happen. But I think they were a little kind of like too well known Mm -hmm. or... Didn't feel mysterious enough. and Yeah, or just things we couldn't substantiate a whole episode off of. Like little things that once we looked it up, we were like, oh, I get it. But what do we talk about for 30 or 40 minutes? Yeah. 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 But now we are on one of the arguably best episodes of Gilmore Girls, in my opinion, the Bracebridge Dinner. Yes. Woo-woo. 
Whoop whoop. Episode 210. And to kick off our discussion of this episode, we are going to kick it off with our favorite kickoff segment. Let's kick it off. You're the best, you know. The worst. (laughs) So today we are asking on you're the best, you know. The worst. (laughs) What are the best and worst meals that Suki cooked on Gilmore Girls? And they might make you hungry in our discussion. Maybe grab a snack. Maybe grab a five-tier cake. Because we don't think you'll enjoy listening as much if you are hangry. Hangry is no fun. Yes, do not be hangry. So, I don't know, for the best, like, we're kind of in one of her epic meal episodes, the Bracebridge Dinner. I mean, this 19th century recreation. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's got to be the best, the most interesting. There were... Butternut squash soup, and there was trout and peacock pie and baronet beef. A butternut squash soup, <laughs> which is maybe my favorite Jackson line in the whole history of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> Methinks a butternut oh squash gosh. soup. Humble servant, bring us the first course to dine with pleasure. Mm, Methinks it be a butternut squash soup. Uh, Methinks you're right, Squire Bracebridge, thus and verily. And verily thus. Don't forget about the baron of beef. Or the wassail, whatever that is. Or the plum pudding. Prune tarts. Beer. Grog. And some sort of beverage good enough to make Bootsy and Jackson sing Welcome to Margaritaville. So you know it's something delicious. Yes. And they got to throw the whole party. I mean, we'll get into that more, but Bracebridge dinner. That's my best. Well, you took the words away from me because that was definitely <laughs> what I was going to pick. I We had to ask this question because this is the episode. But I also feel like this episode is quintessential peak Suki, aside from her magic risotto. Yes. <laughs> With the proper wine. Yeah, True. that's the best. So that's done. What's the worst? If there is a worst, how could there be a worst? Yes, I don't have any, and I'm sure there could be something I'm forgetting. Because Suki is known to have some mishaps in the kitchen. But I think probably the worst meal Suki cooked is not really her fault. It's more that she didn't know her audience. So at the beginning of this season, when Lorelai and Rory and Suki and Jackson have Luke and Jess over, because Jess is new to town, they don't really know their audience and so let's see i'm just flipping through the script here suki says maybe Mm -hmm. i should make grilled cheese jackson but you're making the pot roast but not everybody likes pot roast well then they can have the chicken (laughs) wings the mashed potatoes the four different kinds of salad that you're making in addition to the pot roast and then there is something with three heads of garlic and (laughs) there is just all sorts of stuff going on and then jess is not interested in any of it and he just steals a beer from lorelei's fridge not Suki's fault, but not knowing her <laughs> audience. That's true. Going a little, a little uh, overboard. Yes. She didn't have any anything to base her decisions off of. And yeah. I feel like I'm didn't see this here somewhere, but I thought, oh yes, here it is. Then there's also a part where Jackson and Suki go crazy over this lemon and really freak out Jess because they've never met him before. They're like, isn't this the best lemon you've ever tasted in your entire life? 
<laughs> it's a little overwhelming for a first meeting. Oh, a little bit. I love how them as a couple, like, they have food in common, but he grows it and she cooks it. But they still they still appreciate it, like, on the same level. Mm-hmm. It's it cute. is a match made in heaven. Because yeah, also in this Bracebridge dinner episode, she's quizzing him on vegetables. And did you remember this? Did you remember this? Did you remember this? And then she <laughs> makes up a vegetable. And he says, no, I don't. Good. You passed the test. Jeez. Man, and I we... thought in that moment that uh, that Jackson was the one who was teasing her like, oh, no, I did forget it. when." He <laughs> so <went> did I. <laughs> so did I. How about you? What is your worst Suki meal? Well, it's not so much a meal, but the lack of a meal and the frustration that it causes her. The iced tea for Norman Mailer (laughs) in in their own inns. This had to be season four, five, four. Yeah, somewhere in there. When they have the Dragonfly Inn, Lorelai and Suki have that. And Norman Mailer is this writer, and he's being interviewed by someone at the Dragonfly Inn in their dining room. And it's hilarious listening to this Norman Mailer guy, which, is he real? Yes. I feel like, he's okay. a real author. Okay. And just listening to him and the guy talk is hilarious because he just keeps this, like, monitor like this his voice is so steady no matter what the question is but he keeps ordering iced tea and suki is fed up with it because their finance lady said you should cut lunch you're not making enough money just do breakfast and dinner for a while and suki's like no it's my lunch and the kirk is out in a hot dog costume (laughs) in front of luke's and she doesn't even serve hot dogs and uh anyways she finally yells at Norman Mailer about only taking, only drinking iced tea, not buying meals, but turns out she's pregnant. So it has a nice ending, but uh, very frustrating to get to that point. And if you want to find that episode, it's called Norman Mailer. I'm pregnant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's the best. Yeah. Yeah. So bad, but good. Yeah. Well, should we talk about the best Suki meal now? The Bracebridge dinner? Let's do it. Let's do it. Gilmore Girls, episode 210, the Bracebridge dinner. The IMDb summary is as follows. While Rory struggles to keep the budding rivalry between Dean and Jess under control, (laughs) Lorelai invites most of the citizens of Stars Hollow to an elaborate feast complete with Elizabethan costumes and horse-drawn sleigh rides, during which Richard announces to Emily that he has retired. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. That's a pretty good summary, actually. Yeah, they actually did include what was going on. So for many reasons, I love this episode. And actually, if you look on IMDb, you know how people can give each episode ratings. Mm -hmm. This season, this is the second highest rated episode of the whole season on IMDb. Hmm. The highest rated episode for the season is the season finale, which has an 8.9. And this episode has an 8.8. So neck and neck. It's hard to beat the finale of a season. For sure. And that is a good cliffhanger finale. I cannot wait to talk about that one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've got a few months before we get there. Yeah, but it's <laughs> not that far, actually, which is exciting. Yeah. We've really flown through this season already, I feel like. It does feel like we have. Yeah. Yeah, this is episode 10 of the season, season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, we're almost halfway through. 
I know. Next episode, we'll be halfway done. Wow. Okay, Owen Wilson. I appreciate <laughs> the enthusiasm. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Did not even mean to impersonate that guy. Wow. Oh, I love it. Wow. <laughs> you know who I do impersonate sometimes from this episode? Who? Suki St. James, when she says, I'm sad. I'm mad. I'm smad. I love that line. Yeah. I think she is so good in this episode. Why do you say that? I just think she is peak funny for Gilmore Girls style of humor. I recently watched the movie Spy with her in it. And she is so mm-hmm. funny in that movie, but in a completely different way. Her character is so different. And then watching this episode, it kind of made me miss this side of her silly, funny Melissa McCarthy, in which she's kind of just like cute and perky and bubbly and klutzy. Uh, and obviously she's great in Spy when she's a lot more brash and awkward and not confident in herself that's funny mm-hmm. in a different way but i really love this and she's just so enthusiastic about making this meal and she forces jackson into being the squire and yeah she makes oh, all these funny that. comments about oh my goodness all these people and how am i gonna get this food done and da, 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 da. it's just cute and very funny yeah i i love that they just turned a smad situation into such an uplifting one for the town, you know, everything. The So the Bracebridge group who paid for this whole dinner to be put on with actors and authentic mm-hmm. costumes and all that, except Paris, she noticed a few a few mistakes, but, you know, that's Paris. Yeah. The anachronisms, as she points the out. The anachronisms. <laughs> oh, my gosh, what a word. So they get stuck in Chicago, I believe. Because snow, of snow. Which yeah, which Chicago, that's like the most used, like the airport in the U.S. It's in Chicago, though. All the snow, all the lake snow, lake effect snow. It's nonsensical. So anyways. <laughs> it's, an an <laughs> it's an anachronism. It's an anachronism. So Lorelai and Suki are like, oh, hey, well, let's invite Luke over and, and he can just eat the dinner. And oh, yeah, you know, uh. Jackson can come, and then that's like, let's invite the whole town. And so I love that they got to do that, and that they even stayed overnight in the inn, like everyone slept over. Mm-hmm. It's just the perfect Stars Hollow Town episode. Because even Bootsy and, is there. Yeah. And they find a great way to work in Richard and Emily, because... Richard Mm -hmm. has been really stressed out and disappointed in his work. And so Rory says, this will be a great way to lift his spirits. And when he gets there, he's already in a good mood. And Emily's so cute. She's like, I'm taking the credit for it. (laughs) And they, (laughs) then we find out that he quit his job in a huff. And that's why he's so happy is that he doesn't have to be around these people. And then Paris sneaks her way in because she shows uh-huh. up to talk about newspaper things and Rory invites her to stay. Yeah. It's nice. We have Stars Hollow, but then also some characters from Hartford and and uh, bring those two worlds together a bit. And I think it's great because everybody gets their little character moments. Mm-hmm. Like Paris gets her moment where she's like... 
rereading the Iliad for the third time is not doing, not not doing anything. <laughs> or when Mrs. Kim comes in and Lorelai says, can we get your stuff in your car? And she's like, we don't have any more stuff. People have too much stuff. This Just is all little I character need. moments. Yeah, her <laughs> tiny little handbag. <laughs> yeah. And then even seeing Luke and Jess together, they have some of their more fun moments where they're both yeah. agreeing, like, I'm not going to eat this. What is this? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes and you've even like get this. some dean and jess rivalry in there in a way yes and i th- I feel like this is the obvious start to the dean jess rory triangle conflict because he this is the episode where he starts disliking jess because jess was in yeah. a fight dean tried to stop it and jess just went ahead and kept on swinging and Dean also sees Rory and Jess share a a little stare at each other, little mm-hmm. glance that's a little more friendly than he would have liked. So it's kind of the start of the end. And huh. I think Jess starts to become a more well-rounded character because you learn about they kind of retcon this later, but at this point in the series, mm-hmm. he doesn't really have a good relationship with his mom. And he's still trying to figure out where he fits with Luke and Stars Hollow if his mom doesn't want him to come home. Yeah. And you find out he and Rory have similar taste in music and the guy he was beating up, Rory's like, oh, yeah, that guy's the worst. So you kind of go, oh, okay, <laughs> there's more to the story than I realized when I first met this guy. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well... Before we max out our time on just talking how great this episode is, one of our favorites, maybe mm-hmm. we should actually talk about our pop culture ref. Oh, I think that is a great idea. <laughs> Taking it, rewind, to right after the cold opening and the intro, we've got Michelle just trying to help a customer on the phone when Rune starts being a little annoying. Stop that. Stop what? Stop jumping like a Mexican bean. Well, Lorelai asked me to dust some picture frames. How do you suggest that I clean the top, Smarty? Well, I didn't know that you could do that. Yes, I am miraculously talented, aren't I? I thought an alarm would go off, like in the Thomas Crown Affair. That would be if this was a museum and you were a man allowed in museums. Taylor, first of all, how do you feel about us covering a reference from Rune? The worst! What are we doing? So, you read my mind. You read my mind. Because as we were prepping for this, I decided to go back and look and see how many non Lorelei and Rory episodes or non Rory and Lorelei references have we done. And this is episode 34 for us, mm-hmm. correct? Yes, ma'am. And here are the people we have covered besides Lorelai and Rory. We've done Richard twice in season one. We did one from Drella. <laughs> and that's it from season one. Wow. And from season two, we did Suki. And then in episode 202, Louise snuck in there because she had mm-hmm. one of the royal weddings. But we also had one from Lorelai. And one from Rory. So, 
four people, and now Rune is number five. Oh, my. Yeah, and I, goodness gracious, I cannot imagine for the life of me ever having another Rune pop culture no. Well, this is his last episode in the series. Oh, then definitely not. So, <laughs> he's gone. Oh, I thought there was at least a couple more, but I guess not. Yeah, there's some before the Bracebridge, you know, in between, but. Yeah, the terrible first date with him and Lorelai. Yep. yep. Et cetera. How do you feel about covering Rune? <laughs> well, I think that we are hopefully going to get to know this little guy a little better. Maybe. Yeah, this little guy that little... doesn't belong in museums. Little guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did not know what the Thomas Crown, what the Thomas Crown affair was. So I was clueless when Rune was mentioning it, but I kind of figured that's probably a good thing because I don't want to understand references from this man. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I had heard of it, and that's all I knew. All right, but I could tell it was a heist movie because. Painting, alarm going off. Yeah. Sounded like a robbery. I take it back. I knew it was a heist movie. That's it. So the Thomas Crown Affair, though, it is a movie. It is a heist movie of some sorts. Mm-hmm. But more of a cat and mouse game. But I also feel like it was another type of movie... That's a little, a little different. <laughs> well, we also should clarify, there are two Thomas Crown Affairs. Mm-hmm. Originally, what we were going to do is we were each going to watch one and then kind of compare and contrast. And as you know, I am an aficionado of Turner <laughs> Classic Movies, Turner Classic Movies, And, oh my goodness, they came through for me. The 1968 version was on demand. I was so pumped. And then I watched it, and I was like, there is nothing about art in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, in that movie, Steve McQueen, as Thomas Crown, is pulling a bank heist. While Faye Dunaway is the insurance agent trying to catch him in the act. However... In the 1999 version, starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo, and Faye Dunaway in a small role, (laughs) it's an art heist. So I decided I should probably watch the one that Rune is referencing. Yeah, now we know. Rune, he liked the newer version. He's a fan of Pierce Brosnan. All things... I was going to say Men in Black. Nope. All things... (laughs) James Bond? James Bond. It was coming. <laughs> Just very Here slow. Here comes the James Bond. They wanted you remember. That is not any James Bond theme song. That is the Men in Black theme song with terrible ah. singing. Ah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. So we never thank sing you on Taylor the show. For... <laughs> thank you, Taylor, for. We don't oh sing yeah, on the show. <laughs> never. Well, thank you for watching uh, two movies. <laughs> I'm sure you will have just that much more to give. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, Thomas Crown Affair. 
the guy, Thomas Crown, you guessed it, that's his name, is this uh, financial wealthy guy. He owns a building. We got that much. and (laughs) He's in acquisitions, I believe, which is basically, I think, movie first draft. Like, this guy does business. (laughs) Let's call it acquisitions. (laughs) So he buys companies and then... Sure. Builds his empire, right? No, but he... Mm-hmm. And at some point, he kind of, quote-unquote, drops the mic or drops his ballpoint pin after he signs some sort of paper. Oh, yeah. He's like, mm, you guys, you're excited about it, but guess what? I just got it for $30 million cheaper than anybody else would have paid you. Suckers. Drop the pin. Boom. Um, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Yeah, so he did that, and he had a secretary in one of those big offices and looked out over the New York skyline. He's a pretty important mm-hmm. guy, it seemed. But he also loved to go to the museum, which you work right by. Yeah, Why the Met. head on down and have your lunch? Mm-hmm. But he loved this one particular painting, or so we all thought. The Harvest, yeah. right? Yes, by I, the Haystacks, I think. The Haystacks. By Van Gogh, correct? Mm-hmm. I think so. No, not Van Gogh. It's definitely an Impressionist, and I'm completely blanking. But it was not the Monet, which is the $110 million painting that everybody who comes in this gallery usually wants to see. But school children are not impressed until you tell them how much it's worth. Yep. This painting is considered to be the first Impressionist work in history. It started the Impressionist movement. It influenced dozens of major artists who went on to found the first major school or style of the 20th century. Okay. Try this. It's worth a hundred million bucks. Then one day, well, very, I mean, it happens like immediately into the movie. Like he goes to the museum, he goes to work, and then back to the museum where a few... Men speaking a different language are <laughs> busting in <laughs> Eastern European yes. sun, you know. Coming in a Trojan horse of oh all things. Oh my goodness. Can we talk about that? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the museum, they're expecting a, they're expecting a sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. And then it says on the description, though, that it's a horse sculpture. And they're like, well, let's bring this sucker in, crack it open, see what we got. It's a Friday afternoon. You know, they're not looking to dig into something too deep, work too hard. But they open it up and, okay, it's a horse, not a sarcophagus. Well, I guess we'll leave it here and deal with it on Monday. So they just, like, leave it. But here's the thing. If that's, like, a real antique, you know, from the Roman Empire or something, you're just going to leave it in the basement? I like, mean, it's secure as far but as But, like, they what know. about temperature and, you know? These are excellent questions that I had not considered. Because I was mostly impressed that this fake Trojan horse had three guys inside of it. Like, one I came out and I was four. like... Oh, yeah, you're right. It was four. Because four. They, they cut themselves out like a C-section on this horse almost from the inside. <laughs> on its stomach. Like the alien coming out, like, bumping out of its stomach. And one pops out, and I'm like, wow, he must have been cramped. And then there's another one, like, whoa, 
oh, another one. And then two more come. And I'm like, DJ Khaled, another one. Another one. <laughs> How are they doing this? Yeah, I, that horse did not look that big. No. It, it wasn't. No. No. But they had, like, oxygen masks on or something. Mm-hmm. So, like, they had some oxygen. So they... But, like... There was not enough room for four grown men. And, like, these were not tiny guys. One guy was really tall. Yeah. They were really big. And big Eastern European men coming to break into art museum. And they come and start cutting wires and things and climbing up ropes and bringing helicopters. (laughs) They're going to blow open the roof. Explosives. Yeah. They have some intricate plan. Mm -hmm. But they're really just the decoy. The decoy. Mm-hmm. Because Thomas Crown himself shows up being like, hey, I wanted to come in to look at my favorite painting, but somebody blocked it off. These, like, rando Eastern European guys. And that alerts <laughs> the people who actually work there. And mm-hmm. then just all sorts of crazy decoy the museum goes into lockdown and then pierce brosnan himself actually grabs the painting sticks it in his briefcase and sneaks out okay let's talk about the briefcase yeah let's talk about that he rips that paint off the wall really impressive he was really fast he like Mm -hmm. shakes the frame right off of it because it's not secured in there or anything just and then Throws the painting into it. Well, okay. He lies the painting down nice and flat. And, you know, it's on a wooden frame. Then he mm-hmm. shuts the briefcase. The painting should I snap I don't understand. I know. I don't understand frame. it. Like, he didn't Cause he take does the it canvas m- off. He does it multiple times in the movie. And I never understood how that worked in physics. Because and then he like, pulls it out at his fancy pants mansion, and it still looks amazing. Yeah, that made no sense. Like, it's not like he put it in one side of the briefcase, sh- closed the other side on it, and then, okay, cool. No, he opened the briefcase all the way flat, laid the paint in, and went from corner to corner, closed it like it should have been a taco. And it was, <laughs> it but... It looked like the a taco. Wood, yeah, the wood frame did not... It's fine. It is bendable. No big deal. What? And it looks like, if you'll follow the taco metaphor, when it's on the sheet, or flat, you think, oh, it's like a flat thing that should be like a hard shell taco. But he folds it like it's a soft shell taco. (laughs) (laughs) This guy does not understand food. (laughs) No. Uh, anyway, if anyone has insight into how this works, please tell us. Yeah, I have no idea. Because it's a pretty big plot point that doesn't and make I, any sense. Yeah, I watched it, like, I watched the clip over. And it, it's still, like, no, he definitely folded that with the wood frame. Yo no comprendo. Or as they would say in anime, impossible! Everything's impossible <laughs> in anime. And yet... They still oh, can fold paintings. So much as possible. <laughs> so much. Yes. So, so yeah, but he grabs the painting. He's got his own little plan set up. Like, he had the briefcase hiding in there from when mm-hmm. he came there in the morning. And 
He shoved a couple things under the under the metal Bench. door that was coming down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to lock it down. And he just walked out. No big deal. Until yeah. Renee something. She has a name in this movie, and it is Catherine Banning. Thank you, IMDb, because I pretty much just called her Renee Russo the whole movie. You know, I called her Faye Dunaway. <laughs> you mean the person who plays his therapist? Yeah, which, again, we need to talk about that. But, um, yeah, I thought she was Faye Dunaway. You mean the Faye Dunaway that was in the 1974 film Chinatown that we watched just a few months ago? <laughs> oh, that was her. <laughs> One and the same. Ooh, all right. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. She looked a you lot more. You mean the same Faye Dunaway like the that... The same Faye Dunaway that was the romantic lead in the 1968 Thomas Crown Affair? That That's the one. Yeah, yeah, I was just a little bit confused because I read right away that Faye Dunaway and Pierce Brosnan in this movie. So I'm like, oh, okay, Faye Dunaway. But as I was watching, I was like, I feel like this lady doesn't look familiar to me, but Faye Dunaway would. <laughs> and so I figured it out. But at first I called her Faye Dunaway and it kind of stuck. <laughs> I got it. Got it. <clears throat> but yes, Renee. Renee. She is the... So he takes the painting, right? And they arrest these mm-hmm. European guys and they're like not saying anything until Renee, the insurance lady, comes in and is like, this painting is worth $110 million. Wait, million or billion? T- million. Million. $110 million. I'm going to find it back. And I get to keep like 10% or 5% of uh, yeah. whatever the painting's worth, which... That's a pretty big 10% deal. 10% of that? 10% would be... Point? 10... <laughs> 11 million. million. No, yeah. No, 11, 11 million. 11 million, yeah. Yeah. Big deal. You just, you would, I mean, I would be done at that point. I'd be like, all right. I retire. Put some of this, yeah, put this in a little retirement account, put some of this in stocks, and buy me a house on the beach. Mm-hmm. But alas, I'm not Renee. I'm not an insurance lady who goes after her man and always gets her man. And she's smart, too. She picks up on little details, like mm-hmm. the way that the cameras work in the museum is they're heat-based. Yeah. And she's the one that figures out that there was a heater in that gallery so that no one could see who was in there during the um, escape and who took it. That's why he did it. And then there are just other little details that, mm-hmm. in working with the police, she's the one to figure out. Yeah. That the Eastern European men were the decoy. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Crown was the real deal. Because he stole the Monet and so she had him look up, okay, well, all the most recent auctions, who was bidding on the Monets? Mm-hmm. And Thomas Crown was. Yeah. So pretty much any major plot revelation about how he did this or who he is comes from her. The police are basically useless in this. Yeah, they don't do much. Mm-mm. No. They get noticed by Thomas Crown. He's like, oh, hey, I'm going to buy them a drink because I know that they're just police officers watching me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And while this is all happening, she ends up in a whirlwind romance with one Thomas Crown, even though she's 
very straightforward about the fact that I am going to pin you down. I know you did this. I'm just, I will break the law to find my proof. And at first their romance seems purely, uh, flirtatious. Yes. And then develops into something more substantial. Yeah, um, this is where I start to think, I don't think that this is a mystery action movie. I think this is basically an elaborate softcore porno. Okay, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I, like, realize compared to a lot of people, I'm, like, I will own the fact that I am a prude in my movies compared to a lot of people, and that is just... I am not comfortable watching sex scenes. I don't feel the need to watch it. But holy cow, this one, I felt like for a good like 20 or 30 minutes of the movie, I was like, okay, didn't need to see that. Skip. Didn't need to see that. Skip. And then you and I were texting back and forth and I was like, I missed that part. Skip. <laughs> uh, yeah. It. Um. So here's why I think that. The sex scenes, well, really just one scene was elaborate. I mean, it was not, you know, go to the bed and and Cut you're done. To later. It, it, yeah, no, it was uh, on the bottom part of the stairs. Then a little farther up the stairs. Oh my again, goodness! <laughs> stairs? Are you kidding me? That would and be the worst. That's like, what are you gonna do it on a bed of nails next? Like, <laughs> it made no well, sense. And this is after. She shows up at a gala wearing no underwear and a see-through dress. So, like, that was the first thing that I was like, you just think, oh, she's coming to this event. And then, like, you keep watching and you're like, wait a minute. I didn't really just see that, did I? Oh, wait. Oh, my goodness. That dress is see-through and she's not wearing underwear. And, yeah, there's just a lot of little things like, oh, she's on the beach. Oh, she's not wearing a swim top mm-hmm. oh like which just... yeah. oh boy so, and we'll get into because i watched an interview with renee and so we can talk a little more about how she felt about the nudity but like as far as the movie though i felt like it was a just an, i felt like it was an elaborate porno because it was very unbelievable the fact that the two characters even got together because mm-hmm. she was so firm. Do you, she even said, do you really think I'm going to sleep with you when I'm after you right now for this mm-hmm. heist? And so firm on that. And yet they still have sex, you know, up the stairs, just like it, it was it was elaborate. <laughs> in the study well, on the table on the ground like it was and it didn't make a lot of sense why they were together it felt more like a fantasy like just something totally made yeah up. well and also he's a pretty boring character <laughs> like yeah. there's n- like yes pierce brosnan is a handsome man like he's definitely attractive but so like i can see that and he's like, clearly his character is supposed to be intelligent because he can pull off this bank heist. And you, like, get a little bit of depth because you, like, see him in these scenes with Faye Dunaway, his therapist. So you know that there's something deeper. But he never has these moments with Rene Russo. He's always mm-hmm. just the, like, suave, charming person. And so, like, I 
like they're both very intelligent and so I can see why that would be an attraction but there's really mm-hmm. like no deeper connection yeah between either of them so the fact that she would become unprofessional feels yeah it definitely feels like a jump yeah well and then he whisked her away to his private island location Uh and uh she's like okay just goes with them and then exactly yeah so now here's the thing guys we're not slut shaming we're not saying boohoo on you for it's just the storyline itself that was nonsensical well it just and it felt very objectifying to mm-hmm. her character yeah. so it felt very gratuitous and very like it doesn't even bother me that they necessarily that they have this relationship that like because in the older version of the movie they also have a relationship and there's definitely they don't show anything because it's 1968 mm-hmm. and the <laughs> expectations of audiences were a little different. <laughs> but the, you know they have this relationship, but it doesn't feel as objectifying to Faye Dunaway because mm. she's not put in these same situations where she's like nude and scene after scene after scene. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I just get frustrated because this is just like a, never ending thing of like women are objectified in so many different ways in films and like to me this is just like the most egregious kind mm-hmm. of like oh here we're just gonna find an excuse for audiences to like stare at her as if she's an object of yeah something to be like desired or like and he's almost trying to i feel like he's almost trying to like win her over as if she's a challenge and by the end of the movie they Mm -hmm. seem to have real feelings for each other but it's more like i will own this and possess this and i don't like that yeah and the other disappointing aspect of it is that she is like this ba woman who is coming in figuring out more than the police is she knew it was him right away and then it's like, oh, yeah, but a woman's not going to do that for long with Pierce Brosnan around. Are you kidding me? And then, mm-hmm. you know, they throw in their relationship. And then um, when they're flying in, in his plane mm-hmm. and she is just giggling up a storm. I just it just didn't feel like it fits. She's suddenly like carefree, but she's still after him. But she's carefree. And. Yeah, it, it worked better i think in the 1960s version i will Mm. tell you like they still have a romance but they're also the way they kind of first get together i think is much more clever they're actually playing chess and this is after several she's tried to find ways to get into his house to try and find the money that he stole from the bank because in that version he Mm. did a bank robbery and so she's coming up with these like crazy things of trying to say, oh, you need new carpet in your house. So somebody tries to install new carpet and he's like, wait, I didn't order anybody. <laughs> oh, it's Faye Dunaway trying to get in to find this money. <laughs> so finally they go on a date and then she comes over and they play this chess match. 
And it's kind of a good metaphor of mm-hmm. how their minds are working, of how they keep trying to outsmart each other through each one. Mm-hmm. And then finally they're like, okay, let's be real. We also are really into each other. <laughs> so it's like, a like there's still a little bit of that element of like, you kind of got to suspend your disbelief that they're opposing each other, mm-hmm. but that they are into each other. But it, it makes more sense there and feels less icky. It's not just us. Renee... Was not too keen on the nudity. Oh, interesting. But in the same way that uh, Meryl Streep was in the presence of live tigers who were growling at her, um, Renee also ended up doing nude scenes. Crazy how that happens to huh. women. <laughs> so if you remember in our Out of Africa episode, you know, Meryl Streep sharing in an interview that the tigers were actually that they used in the film were actually off their leashes so that they would be more riled up and the director did not tell her and just put yeah. her in that scene. So Faye Dunaway was not too keen on it. You but... mean Renee Russo? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was... Renee <laughs> was not too keen on that. But it ended up happening anyway. So the director was like, oh, you can, like, let's just try it out. Let's just try it out. And so you can hear Renee retelling that story in a 2010 interview with Pierce Brosnan where they're just actually kind of having a conversation um, on E.T. Renee wasn't too keen on not just the nudity, but also that sheer dress scene. Mm-hmm. She did not know that it was sheer. Oh, oh, that feels really icky. Yeah. So uh, here is this kind of a long clip. The the, the costumer came in. (laughs) Literally, she had the dress in her hand like that. And she opened it up and put it on. I said, no, uh uh-uh, no, I can't do that. She said, look, just put it on. So I put it on, and I was in a a mirror, but it wasn't backlit. And I thought, well, at least you can't see through it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You stood before me, the backlight came on, and it was... The backlight was just... And I'm dancing, and we had no idea there was a backlight on me, none. No oh. idea. You're transferring assets. Getting ready to run. I suppose I did run. Then what would you have? Not the painting? Not the five million dollar fee? Not me. And he turned and pulled me aside and said, listen, Renee, why don't we just try it with your top off? I went, no, no. He goes, look, you can go and see the dailies, and if you don't like it, I promise you, we won't use it. And I said, mm, I don't think so. I said, look, I promise you, you'll go in there. If you don't like it, we'll show it to you both ways, and it'll be fine. I'm sure you had that planned all along. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. I feel icky. Especially yeah. about that dress scene in which they, like, that, it's one, like, that feels deceptive. Yeah. I mean, it completely was. She, I mean, she said she danced the scene. She did the scene. Not Did knowing. not know it was sheer. And I'm sure they didn't show her those dailies. Yeah. Or if they did, they didn't give the option to redo mm-hmm. it. That just... And... Mm, I... Mm, I just don't like that. Yeah, because even in the sex scenes, it was mostly Pierce Brosnan's butt. Not a lot of Renee. Hmm. Which makes me think that she knew full well there's going to be a sex scene like that. But she was like... I don't want to show a lot or I don't want to show it very much. But in these where she she had no idea what was going to happen. So this could have been just a one sex scene movie, PG-13. But and I have tricked to her a little. S- yeah, I have to say, 
I saw it was rated R before we started it, but I just assumed it was going to be for language or something like that. Because, oh, it's an art yeah. heist movie, you know. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah, they pull well, out a few guns. Maybe they say some... They didn't even really have much language in this one. Mm-mm. And so I was just... Yeah. I kind of expected it. Oh, romance scene. We'll probably have one of those and then move on. But nope, nope, nope. So, and I recognize for some of our listeners, this may not bother you at all. And I realize I am like way more prude <laughs> to you. So like be full aware that I am full aware that many people listening may have that perspective. I'm not mm-hmm. naive to that. But that's just, but, I don't enjoy that. Right. Well, and it's the the fact too that Renee, the actress, was deceived and tricked. And, you know, she even said exactly. with the blue dress, that was clear that that was deceitful and that was wrong. Yeah. But I doubt she had much power to change it. Like, actresses still <laughs> are undergoing yeah. that. But then the nudity um, on the beach where she's just sitting there topless, like, she didn't want to do that. And he's like, oh, you know, just the classic guy thing we'll just try it like just oh just come over and it, it's okay we're just gonna drink coffee like oh just I, it yeah. just sounded perfect like that exactly yeah and it was not necessary to the scene at all no 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 so, so if she didn't want to do it and it wasn't adding anything <laughs> it's yeah and that's also I listen to a lot of podcasts that are about movie making because I just have an interest in that. And sometimes it's from the director's side and sometimes it's from the actor's side. And just the one thing that I hear so much is there is that trust that is so important. Mm -hmm. An actor will always give a better performance if they trust their director. And a director will always have a better movie if they work well with their actors and are open to hearing what they have to say, but also sticking to their vision. And so mm-hmm. the fact that this was not really an environment where she felt heard and felt safe, like that's like that's just from what it sounds like, kind of like directing 101, <laughs> like mm-hmm. make an yeah. environment where your actors feel safe and maybe yeah. challenge them. And not maybe go along with every idea they have because you need to stay true to your vision. But that is not clearly that. <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't an issue of art. That was an issue of, um, I don't even know, <laughs> like yeah. just what she was comfortable doing. Now, Pierce Brosnan, his remarks in the E.T. video, it was a little, but also I do recognize that he's European and uh, Europeans aren't. <laughs> quite as prude as us americans so i get that <laughs> well and he was probably like you were sexy an... you were hot your breasts look great <laughs> like he was like you're beautiful they're beautiful <laughs> and well gay pierce <laughs> yeah and i kind of have a feeling i i want to give him the better like even though it feels a little weird i kind of want to give him the benefit of the doubt of him being like well what do i say yeah. should i affirm <laughs> like, like don't worry there was nothing that Right. Like, you're a beautiful woman. You don't have to be embarrassed. Right. Or, like, should I just, like, affirm, oh, I shouldn't have let this happen. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was a weird spot, but um, he, I don't think he was being gross. You can tell on a guy no, being, like, gross. I, I think he was being, like, oh, we're friends. We did, like, a bunch of nude sex scenes together. Like, we have this rapport. <laughs> they did seem, she seemed very comfortable with him in the interview. Mm-hmm. I did not get the sense that she felt uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know we've 
kind of talk some negative about her <laughs> and what she had to do. But another interview that I watched with her, Ann Pierce was on The View in 1999, mm-hmm. which, wow, The View is very different now. This was when there was Joy Behar uh, with the red hair, Star Jones, mm-hmm. Meredith Vieira, back when she. Whoa, she this is the way OG now. View. Yeah, and Lisa Ling. Okay. I know that name, but I don't know her as well as some of the others. Yeah, I knew like Star Jones, Meredith Vieira, Joy Behar, because she's still on The View. Mm-hmm. But it was weird seeing Meredith Vieira because she's like more serious like interviews now and the first questions they asked pierce and renee were is this movie sexy or slutty <laughs> it's like meredith vieira this is not who you are anymore <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird so yeah that was kind of a weird interview and like the ladies were mostly thanking them for the softcore porn aspects oh. of the movie and I'm like i'm gonna tell you <laughs> i know we talk a lot about how men make women feel uncomfortable but i don't like when women do that to men either that makes me feel icky as well yes this is a two-way street here people (laughs) yeah they they thanked them for the movie said it was a great date night movie and pierce said well you know i hopefully people have a lot of fun after they watch the movie and i was like oh my gosh this is not okay what is this the view like it did not feel like what the view anymore i don't ever watch the view but like (laughs) I just remember, <laughs> I didn't even watch The View, but I just felt like for a while The View was like really controversial. Like, and right? Where are these articles? Yeah, it was political. Uh, you're like, politics. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hate George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lorelai. Oh, Lorelai. Um, so, anyways, that interview was interesting, but. One thing they did talk about was Renee, she got this role when she was 45. And that is not typically the role, the kind of role that you have 45-year-old women. That is true. And they usually pair like a 25-year-old with a, you know, 40-year-old Pierce Brosnan. So I'm going to play you that clip because it was interesting conversation. A lot of people are talking about more about the nude scene that you do. The fact that you're in your 40s, which I love, and doing a nude scene. Everybody's making it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everybody's making a big deal. Like, oh, she's in her 40s. How could she do it? But a part of me thought, no, you really know yourself in your 40s. It's a great time to finally take your clothes off. Where's your head about that? <laughs> you know, of course, I, I'm I, the slot. But... Yeah, no, I guess I am too. I didn't think about uh, the fact that I was 40 taking my clothes off. I just thought about taking my clothes off, period. <laughs> but I, I did think about, because a lot of people uh, brought it to my attention, that I'm a woman in my 40s and I got this part. I'm 45 and I got this part. And I have to say, <laughs> well, I, I have to say that, that Pierce Brosnan and John McTiernan fought for me. And God bless them, because I, I don't think it's the norm. And you have two really cool guys, you know, out there fighting for a... Uh, Bobby is an old broad, you know. People just once your name came up, it was a yes, so it was there. Isn't it amazing that we even are having this conversation? That it is crazy that, that we're having that, this that she's a beautiful it's... girl. She's got talent. What's the big deal? Go figure. I don't know. But you're unusual that you put her in this movie because yeah, Sean yes. Connery has yes. what is she twelve? That girl. <laughs> so it was cool that a forty-five-year-old woman was playing the sexy character because. Still to this, or even day, just a romantic character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you know, they said it's funny that we're still ha- that we're having this conversation and we are still having this conversation because that is still not the norm that two mm-hmm. actors are paired together of the same age. Yeah. They're actually only one year apart. Hmm. Yeah. And I honestly didn't, that didn't cross my mind while watching the movie because they were very <laughs> age appropriate. So it just, <laughs> I was like, All right. I will say watching the movie, I kind of did subconsciously think like, oh, she's a little older. And I think Hmm. just like, oh, this is older than the person I would normally see in this kind of movie. But that's also true of him. I feel like you could have definitely played this as like Hmm. two 20 somethings if you wanted to. Well, like you can come up with some crazy backstory about how he inherited it from his dad and his dad just died. And now we pass the company on to a son. You know, there's a way around it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, that part, that aspect is commendable. I think it's great that a 45-year-old woman was playing a sexy character. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, we still don't see that. It's, and then they you know. sort of make a joke out of that almost. Because at the end of the movie, when she's going, does he really have feelings for me? Or is he just, am I part of the long con? And <laughs> several times he's photographed with a younger woman. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm pretty over this trope. But... It's actually his legal guardian, the one who's been forging paintings for him. (laughs) And I am very over the, oh, he's with a beautiful woman, but it's actually his cousin slash sister slash legal guardian. Like, we've seen that before. Yeah. But in the end, it is, oh, he actually does have feelings for her. Oh, she actually does. Oh, he does one last art heist, which is actually the art heists in these movies are very cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to, like, get to that ending. Because he does a second heist for the art that she wants. She says this is her favorite painting. And they all wear the bowler hats, like the guy in the painting with the bowler Mm -hmm. hat and the green apple. And the police are so confused because they are clearly inept in this movie. (laughs) And I'm trying to think. It's hard to describe yeah, I mean, so he says that he is going to put the painting back on the wall. And he's like, but, you know, don't tell the police. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trusting you. Well, she tells the police, which he knew she was going to. Don't worry about it. And so instead of posting a couple cops in the room where he says he's going to put the painting, they just follow him around the museum. But he has a bunch of other guys dressed the same way in bowler hats, wearing the same garb, passing briefcases around and he pulls a fire alarm, puts some smoke bombs in the Impressionist painting room where he said he was going to go all along and no one else is there. And he, you don't see it, but he grabs the painting that Catherine Renee wants. Yes. Wants. And as well, she didn't the, ask for it, but she said she likes it. <laughs> right, right. That's true. He's shown his affection for her. And he, you see the silver plates like coverings coming over the paintings like to protect them from a fire because they set off smoke bombs that set off the sprinklers but he's wedged a couple of pencils in the in track track, mm -hmm, where the panels were going to come and so the painting that he gave to the museum on loan from his own collection to replace the monet painting that was stolen for a while Mm mm-hmm it's left there, exposed to the elements, the water. And it reveals that the Monet has been in the gallery 
the whole time, just hidden <sighs> under layers of other paint that his legal guardian forgeress forged for him. In watercolor. Mm-hmm. So... He just took the painting and put it back. <laughs> yep. And then he oh. delivers the painting Catherine wanted to her. But she returns it, gets on a plane. She's going back to London. And then, oh, snap, as she's crying over him, he hands her a handkerchief from the seat behind her. And he knew she would give the painting back. And they're together. Forever, presumably. And then she crawls on top of him and they make out and the stewardess just looks on them like, oh, how sweet. And this is pre 9-11, so no one's that worried Uh. about people acting weird on a plane. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the movie. Yeah. And and some um, takes on it from the actors as well to put it all together. I will say, in terms of the actual art heists, those were really fun. Mm -hmm. I think comparing it to the 1968 film, too, that they made some really strong adaptive choices because, obviously, the way security and robberies (laughs) have Mm. evolved in the 40 years from the 60s to the 90s and then switching it to art heists instead of a bank robbery. Yep. And I will say at the end of the 60s version, Faye Dunaway... He robs a second bank again. Or I guess mm-hmm. it might even be the same bank. He robs them again. Anyway, steals a bunch of money. And she chooses to run away with him while he still has the money. So hmm. in the 90s version, they're scot-free because all the paintings are returned. But in the <laughs> 60s version, she's like, I love uh. him enough that I'm going to go on the run for him. So make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Baby Driver, you know. Fall in love after a few interactions. I will go to bat for Baby and Deborah. They have more substance. No, no. Yeah, definitely, definitely. (laughs) I just, I will use any excuse to bring up Baby Driver. I love that you do that. Well, um, can I tell you something, a little fun fact about making the movie? Uh, Please do. One fun story behind the scenes. So as you know, Pierce Brosnan was James Bond in the 90s. What? And when he, yeah, yeah, you might have heard of it. Yeah, I think he so. signed a contract when he first joined the franchise that he could not wear tuxedos in any other movie because that's the signature 007 look. So when he signed on in 1995 to be James Bond, that was part of his contract. Like, you can't wear tuxedos. Interesting. So in Here. this movie, he's a rich, wealthy guy. And he goes to a huge black and white gala, but he wasn't allowed to wear a tuxedo. So the way they got around it is he wears his shirt unbuttoned at the top of the collar. And then mm-hmm. he had a white bow tie, but he wasn't allowed to tie it. So it's draped around his neck. Interesting. But that's, so that's his way. why. Because mm-hmm. oh, I did think it was very strange that it was open like that. Yeah, if you think he looks a little goofy, that is why. Interesting. Yeah. Rules. And who knows? We may see a different version, though, because there are rumors that Michael B. Jordan is going to be the new Thomas Crown. 
with Joe and Anthony Russo producing, who just did directed Avengers Infinity War. And who knows, maybe if Michael B. Jordan takes over, we may be able to see Thomas Crown in a proper tuxedo. I would definitely watch a movie, that movie starring Michael B. Jordan. I think he would definitely be a great energy for that role. Yeah. And he's very attractive. (laughs) (laughs) He is very handsome. Just saying that, putting that out there. Yeah, I saw, like, it, I did see that there was rumored to be another one in, another was, one. like, another one <laughs> in 2007, but, like, and then 2009 they talked about it, and then 2010. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, and then 2014, like, so it's been a long time that it's, like, maybe. Well, and John McTiernan, the director, wrote a sequel while he was in prison. Apparently he lied under oath, and he wrote a sequel while he was in prison. Is it about his own crimes, or...? (laughs) No, I think it was about somebody else, but I can't say for certain. That's my non-professional answer. I did not do deep research. It's for lying under oath, is the gist of what I know. Come on, John. (laughs) So, do you think we're ready to talk about how this fits into the world of Gilmore Girls? I think so. Let's do well, it. I would say we have a better understanding of Rune and what kind of movies he's into. Or yeah, at least once he's aware of. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But let's say let's say he's a big fan because Rune doesn't show much personality other than bitterness. So by him even mentioning a movie, I mean he's gotta like it because what else has he shared with us? <laughs> well, To be fair, to know that movie is about art heists and art museums, you don't even really have to have seen it. If it was big at the time and you saw a trailer for it, you could have figured that out. So at least he's aware of that movie. (laughs) Even though he's not allowed in art museums per Michelle. Yes. Which I find a very funny insult. But, so here's here's what I'm thinking, though. Let's say he did watch the movie. Can we say at Uh least that? Yeah, let's assume. Okay. So Rune watched this movie. Now, probably watched it all the way through. If he's going to mention it, you know, probably liked it, stuck Mm -hmm. in his mind. You don't want to mention things that you hate, right? That's not fun. Mm -hmm. So how tall is Renee? I don't know. Because I just feel like he would not watch a movie with a tall woman considering the fuss he put up over Lorelai being his date because of her height. This is an excellent callback. All right. Oh, my gosh. Renee Russo, she's 5'8". That's not a short woman. Rune and Renee would not work out. No. So does he secretly love tall women but he feels inferior to them so he can't admit it and also i'm not sure he watched the movie closely because no one actually sets off an alarm when they pull off the artwork exactly there is no alarm their alarms are already going off anytime someone pulls the artwork off the walls so maybe he just did not watch this movie closely okay that that's starting to sound more like the truth because, yeah, she's a really tall woman. 
So that would have freaked him out right away. I'd been like, done, no thank you. <laughs> and no alarms went off. It it's yeah. It doesn't work. It's, it's a bad reference, but it's, but it can't be Amy Sherman, Amy Sherman Palladino. She was just pointing out that Rune really has no interest. He's no has no life. Doesn't even watch Rune a movie a that he talks stick. about. He is a dipstick. <laughs> he is a putz. <laughs> putz, total putz. Oh Rune, and then he can't even focus during Suki's meeting or be reliable during the Bracebridge dinner. Goodbye, Rune. Good riddance. Good riddance, Rune. Yeah. So does it change how you read the scene? Um, a little bit. I thought that maybe I would come to appreciate Rune more because I would learn about an interest of his. <laughs> uh-huh. Even if this was an interest of his, it wouldn't make me think any more of him. And it's clear that he does not know this movie. <laughs> And the fact that he thought there would be alarms on artwork at the Independence Inn is also telling. That he put this place on the same level as the Met Museum. (laughs) I do not think he understands what a museum is. I do not think you know what that word means. (laughs) (laughs) I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, Rune. Goodbye. See you never. (laughs) Get out of here. Adios. Wait, what's the what's the Ferris Bueller line? Which one? Get out of here. Go home. Oh, oh, my favorite one. What are you still doing here? The movie's over. Go (laughs) home. (laughs) Uh, Still have not seen this that movie, but I do know that quote thanks to you. What? You've never seen this? I don't think you've. I'm too busy that watching softcore porn for this the, for this show. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that sentence that you just <laughs> said. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. In all seriousness, though, guys, this movie's rated R. It's got nudity in it. Don't that's, watch it with children just... for sure. No, don't watch it if you are a child. <laughs> if you are a child, <laughs> we apologize if we just exposed you to some things. <laughs> indirectly and if you do choose to watch it just know there's a good half hour in the middle of the movie where it's just on and off with the clothes yeah yeah some some interesting heist though some unbelievable you know watercolor disappearing <laughs> that was pretty crazy <laughs> uh, and maybe yeah. check out the 1960s version because that one had a lot of style to it yeah. I enjoyed that one quite a bit that one's sounding pretty interesting. Yeah. Turn to classic movies for the win. Woo-hoo. So, Taylor. So, Monet. <laughs> Formerly known as, uh, is that our show? That's our show. That is our show. So it's a show. So it's a movie. So it's an art heist. Another movie. Another one. Another one. Well, if you think we are worth $110 million, and we know that you do, we would love for you to follow us on Twitter at So It's a Show. Shoot us an email, so it's a show at gmail.com with your thoughts, yeah, questions, yeah. topic suggestions. You can sign up for our weekly email list, tinyletter.com slash so it's a show. And you can leave us reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the things. 
and we appreciate you beautiful listeners yeah thank you for getting almost halfway through season two with us next episode will be the halfway mark can't believe it Mm -hmm. it's been a blast um and can i follow you at monet on twitter yes i believe you can assuming i can follow you at van dot underscore go two six five because van go is taken yeah but also to clarify because that was taken i'm spelling it at t-b-l-a-k-e-2-4 that makes sense that's a logical progression mm-hmm. it's um, kind of like in french when there's silent letters is that what yeah. they do in french yeah you know say la vie that took three years of french but not much stuff <laughs> je ne sais quoi je ne sais quoi uh, je m'appelle Kyla you can follow me at <laughs> Kyla Katnedu K-Y-L-A C-A-R N-E-I-R-O no that is not a French name croissant croissant sacre bleu uh, croc de monsieur Notre Dame hunchback <laughs> arc de triomphe my French teacher was a hoot though she talked to herself that was interesting. <laughs> I was trying to think of something witty to say, and I just didn't. How about this? She later ran for state senator. I did not vote for her. Oh. <laughs> Jokes from Kyla again. We all gotta eat. All real. <laughs> all right, that's it. Get out of here. Here's a clip for our next up. But I couldn't possibly just say hello. You'll ask how his wife is. And that's it. After that, you will say nothing. You will do nothing. You will sit in the corner and offer no opinions and pull a full-on Clarence Thomas. Am I making myself perfectly clear? Lorelai, it's the only way I'm doing this, Mom. All right, I'll be quiet. I will. I promise. I swear one of these days, Alice, pow, right to the moon. What on earth are you talking about? Who's Alice? 